Welcome to the Voyages and Travels of the Ambassadors, the epic story of a 17th century trade expedition from Germany to Persia that failed so completely its leader was publicly executed upon his return. This is Episode 6, The Cossacks. Now that we're five episodes into this journey, I should probably introduce myself. My name is Stephen W. Onan. Only my mother called me Stephen. She died last year after a decade of suffering from a devastating stroke. My friends call me Steve. I was born but not raised in Georgia, a U.S. state, not the country on the Black Sea. I was raised in Arizona, Minnesota, California, Virginia, Nevada, Germany, Norway, and England, with forays into ten other countries. Today I live with my wife in Sacramento, California, and she recently noticed that the seven years we've owned our home is the longest I've lived at any one address. Our children are scattered around the U.S., and one lives in Belgium. I'm now retired after 40 years of work as a secretary, magazine editor, newspaper reporter, photographer, labor communicator, and webmaster. I've written one historical novel and several million more words of prose and nonfiction. The Voyages and Travels of the Ambassadors figures prominently in the novel, and by the time this podcast is finished, you'll be able to get a copy from Amazon. And that's enough about me. If you'd like to read the transcripts of each podcast episode and view some related maps and illustrations, you can find them at my substack, titled The Semi-Pro Pilgrim. We are now in Book 4. The date is July 30, 1636, and the ambassadors are about to board the Friedrich and leave Nizhny Novgorod for Astrakhan, where the Volga River empties into the Caspian Sea. But they discover that a labor dispute has been simmering among the shipbuilders, and a reckoning of construction costs is required. Upon investigation, they find two issues— One, that the recruiter who had hired the workers is getting a kickback of 40 rubles in exchange for securing higher wages. And two, that a blacksmith who had cheated the company is now threatened with punishment that might include a death sentence. We are not told what happens to the recruiter or how the final cost is affected, but the 70-year-old blacksmith falls prostrate and weeping at the ambassador's feet and receives a pardon due to his advanced age. Once they set sail, Adam Olarius begins immediately charting the course of the Volga River, which he says is one of the noblest and greatest in the world. With all possible exactness, and with the assistance of a Dutch master's mate named Cornelius Nicholas, one of the most able I ever came acquainted with in that science, the ship goes aground two kilometers downriver, only two paragraphs after Olarius notes the misfortune of sailors, whose boats we had seen cast away and half-rotten upon the sands. It takes them four hours to get off the sandbank. The ship goes aground three more times in the next three days, and the ambassadors, worried that Cossacks might attack the stranded vessel, post guards around the clock. Those who are able to bear arms, both soldiers and servants, were divided into three companies, Olarius writes, stationed fore, aft, and amidships. On August 1, the wind is against them, so they take to the oars and make only 500 paces before getting stuck again. Most of the gentlemen of the company take the opportunity to go ashore for some bird hunting. 
The next day, the ship is stuck on a sandbar for nine hours, whereupon the expert pilot hired for the voyage tells them he last made the trip eight years ago and is ignorant of the current course of the river. This admission much abated the courage of the company, who look back at the six miles covered in four days, look forward at the 1,500 miles to the Caspian Sea, and begin to doubt they will ever complete the trip. On August 3, they make more progress and encounter a great vessel of some 1,000 tons, loaded with salt fish from Ostrakhan and coming in the other direction. The ship needs all of its 200 crewmen, who tow it upriver when the wind is against them. They cast anchor a quarter of a league before them, and all those men pull the rope to which it is fastened, Olarius writes, and so they advance little by little, with much expense of time and pains, making but two leagues a day at most. On the 5th of August, a messenger delivers letters from Germany sent three months earlier, and the ship gets stuck again just outside the city of Basilegorod, today named Vaselsursk. The city has no wall, its buildings are made of wood, and thus it might properly be called a village. Situated near the Sura River, it was once a fort used by the Russians in its wars against the Tatars, which we briefly discussed in episode 5. Valerius tells us the fort was built by the great Duke Basili, or Vasily III, Tsar from 1505 to 1533. But now that the Muscovites have extended their territories much farther, they think it unnecessary to keep any garrison there. They reach the city a day later, after spending much ado to pass the sands which we met with every foot, and fire off their cannons in salute. The ship is now approximately halfway to the city of Kazan, formerly the Khanate of Kazan, and Olarius tells us about the Tatars of the region. Their country reaches beyond Kazan on both sides of the river. The inhabitants have no houses but only wretched huts and live on honey, wild birds, and milk. The tribes have different names depending on whether they live in the mountains or the plains, but Olarius is certain that they are all heathens knowing not what either circumcision or baptism means. When they have children, the naming ceremony consists of the parents waiting six months and then giving the child the name of the first person they meet on the street that day. Most of them believe there is a god, but do not believe in hell. They do, however, believe in demons, pray to the sun and moon, sacrifice animals, and take many women as wives. In short, they are absolutely barbarous, treacherous, cruel, and much given to sorcery and robbery, Olarius writes. Since he had previously written that there cannot be anything more barbarous than the Muscovite people, who among other things are ignorant of all art and science, it is not clear which of the two peoples Olarius considers to be more barbarous than the other. On August 7, they arrive at Kosmoromyansk, on the right bank of the river, known for its forests of elm trees, which our translator Baron calls lindens. Some of the trees are so big they are used to make whole boats, while smaller logs make canoes and coffins, which the people sell in various nearby markets. Valerius tells us the bark of the tree is used to make sledges while Baron says the locals peel bast fiber from the trees to make sleighs, boxes, and other receptacles. 
Neither author tells us how the bast is worked, but modern researchers say bast fiber is used to manufacture a wide range of commercial goods, from building products to baby wipes. Today in Kosmotomyansk, local forests of spruce, birch, and pine yield timber that is floated downstream to sawmills. Prefabricated homes are built in Krasnogorsky, furniture in Yoshkar Ola, and the byproducts are used to produce paper, pulp, turpentine, and alcohol. For the next several days, the ship repeatedly runs aground. On August 8, they strike a sandbar near the island of Maslov with such force that the masts crack. They reach Chebuksari that evening, and as the local officials inspect their passport, 300 local people run to the shore for a closer look at the voyagers. The settlement of Chebuksari was officially founded in 1469, although historians believe migrants from Volga, Bulgaria, a medieval state that existed between the 7th and 13th centuries, arrived there after the Mongol invasion of the middle 1200s. As noted in Episode 2, Ivan the Terrible captured Kazan in 1552. In 1555, he built a wooden fortress some 75 miles upriver at Chebuksari, where soldiers of the garrison pacified the discontented and collected taxes. In 1625, there were some 450 soldiers there, and Hilarius tells us there are enough in 1636 so that, if the conquered Tatars should rebel an army can easily be collected to subdue them. Today, the metropolitan area around the city is home to some 700,000 people. On August 11, the ship is once again forced onto the riverbank by the wind. Valerius and Mandelslow go ashore to divert ourselves and see what fruits we could find in the woods, which, Baron tells us, means hunting, not berry-picking. The decision is unfortunate, for the wind changes direction, Captain Cortes raises the sails, and the two men watch the ship head downriver, leaving them behind. They try in vain to catch up by running along the riverbank, and are rescued some hours later when the sloop returns for them. The ship loses an anchor on the morning of August 12, when the crew attempts to drag it around a bend of the river against the wind. The rope breaks when the anchor gets tangled in a sunken tree, an event which happens so frequently on the Volga that the Russians say the number of anchors on the bottom are worth one entire kingdom. On the night of August 13, they arrive at Kazan, still some 1,000 miles from the Caspian Sea. The city is situated on a hill about seven versts, or not quite five miles, from the Volga. It is of considerable bigness, but all its houses, towers, and ramparts are of wood, Olarius tells us. Only the castle and its fortifications are made of stone, being well mounted with cannons, and having a strong garrison in it. In the castle only Muscovites are allowed, and the Tatars are prohibited entering into it upon pain of death. As discussed in the last episode, the Tatars had attacked and burned Moscow only 65 years earlier, killing some 80,000 Russians and taking another 150,000 captives. So perhaps the castle ban is not unreasonable. In 1598, when Tsar Fyodor I died without an heir, kicking off the time of troubles, Kazan sought to regain its former Khanate glory by declaring its independence. Ironically, the troubles were prompted by Ivan the Terrible himself, who killed his eldest son in a fit of rage in 1581, 
making the younger son, Fyodor, possibly mentally disabled and obviously unfit to rule, the heir apparent. The crisis lasted for 15 years and included a famine in 1601-1603 that killed almost a third of the population. A series of usurpers and impostors claimed the title of Tsar. The Poles and Lithuanians occupied Moscow from 1605 to 1612. The crown changed hands six times, and an estimated 1.2 million people died, while some areas of Russia saw their populations decline by more than 50%. A people's militia formed in Nizhny Novgorod by a merchant named Kuzma Minin and a prince named Dmitry Pozarsky put down the Kazan Revolt and liberated Moscow in 1612. The two men became national heroes, and today a monument in Red Square commemorates their patriotism. On August 14, Mandelslow and Olarius once again go ashore to take the situation of Kazan and to buy certain provisions. They find nothing in the market but melons as large as pumpkins and salt fish that smells so bad they literally have to hold their noses. To make matters worse, Ambassador Brueggemann has taken umbrage at the two friends for leaving the ship, so he weighs anchor and sails two leagues downriver. They hire wagons and eventually catch up when the ship drops anchor for the night. The course of the Volga from Nizhny Novgorod to Kazan bends to the east and southeast, but from Kazan to Astrakhan it goes from north to south. The country is very good and fertile, but desolate with few villages because of the marauding Cossacks. They proceed quickly on August 15 because the river is narrow and swift for about 20 miles. But they lose another small anchor and almost lose a large one as they haul the ship over yet another sandbar. On the 18th, they reach the city of Tatushi, 850 miles from Astrakhan, and Olarius tells us there are no villages from here to the Caspian. There are, however, roving bands of Cossacks, and they encounter the local government administrator on the way to Moscow, after serving his three-year term of office, who tells them 70 Cossack horsemen are preparing an attack somewhere downriver. That night, the ambassadors hold a military drill, striking the drums, firing muskets and cannons. Our men did their parts very well and kept their stations, expressing much resolution, Valerius writes. The next day they find a large number of round stones, about the size of an orange, that when broken open contain stars of many colors, some gold, some silver, and others yellow or brown. They take a good quantity aboard ship to serve as bullets for our murdering pieces, also known as the stone-firing cannons. A couple days later, several local fishermen come aboard, sell 55 large sturgeons to the ambassadors, and Hilarius describes their method of fishing. They fasten a big stone to the end of a long cord which falls to the bottom, and at the other end of the cord several great pieces of wood which swim upon the river. All along this cord are fastened many little cords, each of which has a hook baited with a certain kind of fish that the others greedily feed upon. The fish they take by this invention is ten or twelve foot long, the meat of it white, firm, and very delicate. The small boat which carried their extra provisions is now empty and, having served its purpose, is set afire to prevent the Cossacks from making use of it. On August 22, they pass the ruins of a city and what Olarius calls a great stone, some forty feet around, 
that is engraved with these words, Lift me up and you will have luck. Not long before, the ambassadors are told, a Muscovite ship had anchored in the area due to bad weather, and fifty passengers went ashore to raise the stone, only to find these words on the other side. What you are looking for is not here. The Friedrich is bedeviled by contrary winds, which come up at 9 a.m. and die around 5 p.m., and our ambassadors are held up for several days in a region once conquered by Tamerlane. We discussed the Mongols in Episode 2 and the later Tatar slave raids in Episode 5. Now Olarius and his compatriots are traveling through what was the Golden Horde's power base in Russia. Ruled by the Mongols for 240 years, the Russian princes of the time were famously known for their utter subservience to the overlords. They each owed their position to the Khan. In order to keep it, they each had to get the Khan's approval. And to get that, they each had to travel in person to the Horde's capital city of Sarai, which was along the Volga River between Tsaritsyn and Astrakhan. But the Khans were notoriously arbitrary and capricious, keeping the Russian princes off balance. One might be rewarded with great honors and increased territory, while another was unexpectedly executed for some minor infraction of Mongol law. The centuries of humiliation began at the Mongol victory feast after the Battle of the Kalka River in 1223. As noted in episode 2, the punishment for killing Mongol ambassadors was death. But tradition required that princely blood could only be shed in battle so the Mongols needed a creative solution. The high-ranking Russian captives were forced to lay upon the ground. Boards were placed on top of them, upon which the Mongol commanders held their victory feast. As the leaders laughed and celebrated, six princes and seventy nobles were crushed to death. The city of Kiev was utterly crushed in 1240, and a traveling Franciscan monk named Plano Carpini described the destruction. As we were going through that land, we found numerous heads and bones of dead men lying on the plains, for it was once a great and populous city. Now it was reduced almost to nothing. Scarcely two hundred houses remained, and the inhabitants of them were held in vilest slavery. The decimation between 1237 and 1240 resulted in hundreds of thousands of deaths, and it was a shock to the Russian system that remains to this day increased, of course, by the horrors of countless wars in the intervening years. Tamerlane, or Timur the Lame, was a Turk who served the Mongols. Born in 1336 in what is now Uzbekistan, he fought under Genghis Khan's second son Chagatai, before launching his own brutal conquests in the 1370s. He died in 1405 in what is now Kazakhstan. Regarded as one of the most successful military commanders in history, Timur conquered Persia in 1385, and Iraq, Azerbaijan, Armenia, Mesopotamia, and Georgia by 1394. He took Moscow in 1395, invaded India in 1398, and captured Delhi, and in 1399 he conquered Syria. The city of Baghdad was destroyed in 1401, along with 20,000 of its people. Ottoman Sultan Bayezid I was captured by Timur at the Battle of Ankara in 1402. He died in captivity in 1403 an event that triggered a decade of Ottoman civil war. The terrified rulers of Spain, France, and other powers sent ambassadors to Timur's court, hoping diplomacy would prevent attack. But he died from exposure in the winter of 1405, 
on his way to conquer China. Back on the Volga, our party is in desperate straits from the inconstant wind, bad smoked and salted food, a 24-hour watch for marauding Cossacks, the hard labor of rowing the ship during the day, and much unpleasantness and oppression from Ambassador Brueggemann. It is telling that Olarius, who writes so much about so many different things, writes that Brueggemann's behavior is not worth writing about. On August 25, he describes the thick, dark, beautiful forests that line the river near Samara, noting that nearby mountains are convenient for brigands, who can see vulnerable travelers from a long distance away. A courier from Nizhny Novgorod arrives the same day with a message that two or three hundred Cossacks are lying in wait somewhere downstream, and that four of their Russian boatmen are actually Cossacks who plan to betray them. In the evening they see two great fires on the right bank, and fear they had been lit by the Cossacks. A unit of musketeers is sent to investigate. Brueggemann is unwilling to wait for the report, and orders several cannons to be fired toward the unknown camps. But Crucius refuses to allow it, saying they only have the right to defensive military action. A few minutes later, they discover they have narrowly avoided a diplomatic disaster. The musketeers report that the two camps are full of Muscovite soldiers returning to their garrisons after guarding a Persian caravan. The ship arrives in a very dangerous area about noon the next day, but yet another contrary wind forces them to drop anchor. While we stayed there, we saw coming from the shore two great red snakes, which climbed the anchor chain onto the ship, Hilarius writes. When the Muscovites perceived them, they pleaded with us not to kill them, but to give them something to eat, because they were innocent beasts sent by St. Nicholas to bring us a fair wind and comfort us in our affliction. The winds for the next few days are among the best of the trip so far. On August 28, they reached Samara, founded in 1586 as a fortress protecting the Volga trade route. Today, it is one of Russia's largest industrial cities. That night, they find themselves 75 miles downriver at the Mountain of Cossacks, and Hilarius writes that the prognostication of the Muscovian mariners by the snakes proved true. The mountain earned its name for being a kind of robber's roost. As our translator John Davies writes in the tortured prose of 1647, the Cossacks who live upon the River Don and had their retreating places in this mountain, whence they at a great distance discovered the boats that were coming down and their appointed parties to carry on their robberies, have given it the name. Since then, the Tsar's governor in Samara has killed five or six hundred Cossacks in the area, so now they appear only in small numbers. On the 29th, the travelers run out of beer and begin to drink oxycrat. A 1633 book by Philbert Guibert, titled The Charitable Physician, describes it like this. Oxycrat is composed of vinegar and water, but because the vinegar hath not always the same property, for sometimes it is weak and sometimes too strong, it is hard to write of the quantity, but you may take upon six parts of water one of vinegar, but the ordinary use is to take as much vinegar as water, which is best. The same day, some local fishermen come aboard reporting they had seen about 40 Cossacks on the riverbank. The next day, fearing reports of some 500 Cossacks nearby, the entire crew is ready for action. But they see no one. They are assured, again by some fishermen, that a band of local Cossacks has six boats and will not hesitate to attack. 
the ambassadors double the guard and agree to take the informers downstream as prisoners, because, as the men say, it is dangerous to inform on the Cossacks. They see no Cossacks and make forty miles before nightfall. They meet two ships coming up the Volga on the last day of August, each with four hundred crewmen on board. One carries provisions for the Patriarch of Moscow. The other is loaded with caviar for the Tsar, and the Friedrich exchanges gunfire in greeting both ships. A few miles further on, a ship from Astrakhan tells them that two hundred Cossacks had allowed them to pass without harm. And near the city of Seratov, another ship reports that Cossacks had held their small boats hostage for several hundred rubles. After sunset on September 1, Brueggemann sends a unit of musketeers after ten Cossacks who cross the river and disappear into the woods. Upon their return, having achieved nothing, the marshal berates Brueggemann. Such missions are foolish and dangerous, he says, because there is no way for the ship to support the troops after dark. Valerius tells us only that Brueggemann answered with sharp words. Sometime after passing what is now the city of Kamishin, 150 miles upriver from Zaritsyn, the Friedrich catches up with a Persian fleet of 22 ships on its way home. The Holsteiners blow their trumpets and shoot cannons to express their joy, which the Persians answer with small arms fire. Olarius and a Persian interpreter are sent to pay Duke Frederick's respects to the Kupzi, which appears to be the title of a merchant representing Shah Abbas I. They attempt to board the Persian vessel on the port side, but the Kupzi's wife has her quarters on that side, and so they are forced to board on the starboard side. Several servants, whom Olarius describes as very handsome persons, conduct them to the Kupzi's chambers, where they are invited to sit cross-legged on a carpet. They comply out of diplomatic courtesy, but find it difficult to continue any long time in that posture. They exchange pleasantries, eat from a plate of fruits, grapes, and pistachios, and partake of some excellent Russian vodka. The merchant says that soon they will be leaving the roughness and barbarism of the Russian nation, and entering Persia, which has an absolutely inviting manner of life and freedom that they will enjoy along with everyone who lives there. As they leave, the Kupsi tells them he has reliable intelligence that an ambassador from the king of Poland is in Astrakhan as they speak, having been sent to Persia via Constantinople and Baghdad. He assures them that is all he knows, but that they should be able to guess what Poland was trying to negotiate with the Shah. The ambassadors receive a Tatar envoy aboard the Friedrich, and Olarius describes him as a tall, yellow man with entirely black hair and a big, long beard dressed in a black sheepskin coat with the fur outside, who resembles the devil who is depicted in paintings. His colleagues look no better. After entertaining the devils with goblets of vodka, the ambassadors send them sufficiently drunk back to their ship. They leave the Persian convoy behind in Zaritsyn, which was renamed Stalingrad in 1925, and renamed again as Volgograd in 1961. It was founded as a fortress in 1589 to protect Russian territory along the Volga, and is only thirty miles or so from the river Don to the west, and thus is close to territory once ruled by the Don Cossacks. The most famous of the Don Cossacks, or infamous depending on your definition of freedom fighter, might be Stepan Razin, also known as Stenka. From 1667 to 1670, Razin led a peasant uprising among the Cossacks, attacking Russian and Muslim settlements on the Caspian Sea, 
up the Ural River, the Don, and the Volga. He seized Astrakhan and Tsaritsyn in 1670 with an army of 7,000. Engaging in drunken orgies, perpetrating savage atrocities against the nobles and military officers, murdering the governors, and proclaiming Cossack self-rule. He took Samara, Saratov, and Kazan with a force that had grown to 20,000, looting and burning the cities to the ground. Tsar Alexis, who ruled from 1645 to 1676, defeated Razin in October 1670, captured him in 1671, and brought him to Moscow, where he was tortured, drawn, and quartered in Red Square. The Tsar then burned down the rebel villages, executed their leaders, and retook the last remaining stronghold of Astrakhan in December 1671. Razin was widely regarded by the common folk as a hero, and a song was written about him. From beyond a wooded island, into the river wide and free, proudly sailed the famous barks of Razin's Cossack yeomanry. In the first one stank a Razin with a princess at his side, Drunken holds a joyful rebel with his beautiful young bride. Stenka Razin hears the murmur of his discontented band, and his lovely Persian princess he has circled with his hand. His dark brows are drawn together as the waves of anger rise, and the blood comes rushing swiftly to his piercing jet-black eyes. Volga, Volga, Mother Volga, deep and wide above the land, I will give you all you wanted, life and heart and head and hand and that I might rule as ever all my freeborn men and brave. Volga, Volga, Mother Volga, Volga, make this girl a grave. Volga, Mother of the nation, Volga, Volga, Russian river, take with spirit this great gift, the Cossack Razin is the giver. And in his mighty grip he took the slender figure of his bride. Over the ship's side he hurled her, and into the heavens leapt his pride. I found the song in a 1991 book titled Down the Volga by Marc de Villiers, who wrote in the preface that a journey down the Volga in these days of the collapse of communist orthodoxy is a chance to see into the Russian heart. As for the old man who sang the song? Well, he said when it was done, so much for that. But the peasants are all gone now, aren't they? We're all just workers on the land now, aren't we? Our country has been flying apart as long as anyone can remember? And here it still is. Our ambassadors are now less than 300 miles from Astrakhan, and the country is described as having so barren a soil that no crops can be grown there. On September 7, they see a gallows that has been erected upon a high reddish hill. It was the first we had seen in those parts, Olarius writes, and we were told that it was set up by the governor of the nearest city for the execution of Cossacks, and that the compatriots of the executed men allowed their bodies to hang there for no more than six days. They encounter a ship from Astrakhan which has been robbed by thirty Cossacks four days earlier, and our ambassadors provide the hungry men with a sackful of bread. The same day, Ambassador Brueggemann says he is the victim of a secret plot against him, and orders all the servants of the embassy to take a personal oath of allegiance. The servants reply that they have always been loyal, but will take the oath anyway. In return, they ask Brueggemann to stop impugning their honor and humiliating them. Olarius writes that Brueggemann promised to do so, but it was one of those promises that are either kept or broken. They hear more stories of marauding Cossacks, 
and on the night of September 11, a ship refuses to answer their hails, and Brueggemann orders it to be fired upon. A small boat comes over from the unknown ship, steered by one man, who tells them he and his seven Russian crewmen had been plied with too much vodka by the Persian convoy. All of them had fallen asleep, and the boat was thus drifting with the current. Our pilot knew the man, writes Olarius, and so we gave him some goblets of vodka and sent him back to his boat. The next morning they see several Cossacks in the bushes along the river, and those standing guard are ordered to fire. The cook's helper, named Jakob Hansen, is among them, and his musket is somehow loaded with a double charge of powder. It explodes, tearing off his thumb and inflicting other wounds on his face, chest, and hands. They fire a cannon at more Cossacks the next day, and toward noon on September 15 they arrive at Astrakhan, which lies on the east bank of the Volga, which here separates Europe from Asia. They fire off their great guns and small shot, which astonishes the inhabitants of the city, since they are not accustomed to hear thunders of that kind. And so, Olarius writes, as we departed out of that part of the world, which we may in some manner call our country, we made our first step into the other. Thus far, in the 1,500-mile voyage from Moscow, not a single Cossack has attacked them, and their cook's helper is the only military casualty. They stay in Astrakhan for almost a month. In the next episode, we hear about marvelous meals of fish, apples, walnuts, and watermelons, and find out if experienced Caspian captains think their custom-built ship is suitable to continue the voyages and travels of the ambassadors. <laughs>